Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're taking a look at Killers of the Flower Moon. Martin Scorsese's uh, new three-and-a-half-hour epic is out. Andy, I don't know anybody else that has seen this movie explicitly because of its runtime. I feel like people are <laughs> avoiding this thing, like it's like Return of the King or something. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it's definitely the runtime is hurting it some, but there's still an audience for it. Um a lot of people are still going out to see it. It's done well internationally also. It's true. We're going to talk about the box office when we get to news. We're also going to talk about some trailers, uh, some things coming out soon this holiday season you want to keep an eye on, especially uh, if you're looking to fill out one of those Oscar-like ballots to, to figure out who's going to be winning Oscars or whatever at the beginning of the year. Uh, you're going to want to make sure you know about these movies that are coming out, and we're going to tell you all about them right before the end of the show. Uh, before we get to everything, I want to just take a break for a second andy it's uh october it's 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 spook season right halloween if you celebrate uh what have you been watching these last couple weeks because we've been off and i just want to check in i don't know see see what you're about see what what you've been up to i i have definitely been uh binging a lot of horror the this month tis the season um i started off with uh actually a present from you uh the kind of special edition of the lighthouse which i watched the director's commentary on yeah, uh, fascinating, and that inspired me to then the very next day watch The Witch. Love it, love The Witch. Um, also rewatched The Exorcist, and of course we did It Follows last week. So I, I've been on a kick. I almost started Skinamarink last night, but I just I was too afraid. I also have not worked up the gumption to watch Skinamarink. <laughs> uh, really quick, what's your favorite bit of trivia from the Lighthouse director's commentary? I think mostly just how cold it was out there on on the island. Um, it was freezing cold, and like both Pattinson and Defoe are like outside in the elements, like cold and wet half the time. And like there's a scene where Defoe gets thrown in in the the shallow grave, and he starts getting dirt thrown on his face. He's they said he's like laying in a pool of water, and you can't see it, and he's like acting through it. Uh, so I think it was mostly the elements of like. It was really cold most of the time, and a lot of times they didn't have to like fake the wind or the elements because they were so brutal um, on there. It was only a few times they had to kind of sprinkle in some rain and wind. And I remember reading that that film was like a terror to shoot, but like, yeah, no surprise, I guess. You hear the commentary, and they're like, yeah, it's it's even more miserable than it looks. <laughs> I think uh, also... Me- yeah, the the other part was that Willem Dafoe saw the witch and he had his people immediately contact um Robert Eggers and be like I'm I want to be in whatever you're doing next. That's amazing. God, that's got to be such a uh, like I I can imagine the flattering calls somebody like an up and coming director gets from Hollywood be yeah, getting a call from Dafoe's agent it's just like whatever you're doing he'd like to be in it like it's perfect. I I'm sure Yorgos Lanthimos feels the same way with him in his new feature, right? Uh Mm-hmm. Uh, me, I've been watching horror as well. Like lots of odd, off the wall stuff. Uh, Christine's not really into big horror, so it's been spooky stuff. Halloween Town, Hocus Pocus, Beetlejuice, James and the Giant Peach, Coraline. You know, a lot of a lot of the Disney joint kind of stuff. But nonetheless, I've also been taking time for some scary stuff in the evenings. Evil Dead Two, Rocky Horror. You know, a little Army of Darkness. Trying to get through like as much good October stuff as I can, but. We'll get into more of that as we talk about the show more. First things first, we got to talk about the news this week. Uh, Andy, Netflix is hiking prices again. <laughs> will it ever end? I feel like when, we report on when this. Will we have a respite? I feel like we report on this once every three weeks. It feels like they're hiking prices. And it's not just Netflix. 
all of the streamers have been dabbling in this lately. Like before the holidays, they want to get in there and jack up prices. Uh, Netflix, though, has been hitting it hard, especially because of their recent news uh, with password sharing crackdowns, right? You may have noticed on your Netflix account at home, uh, you get an alert the first time you try to log in now. It says, hey, which house are you in? Are you sure? Is this your primary house? Then everybody that's not there can't get it anymore because Netflix locked down passwords. Uh, now they're charging you more too. What's, what, is, what is this about, Andy? Man, so this all came out of the Netflix earnings call from last week. Uh, some other information from that, Netflix added 9 million subscribers in the recent quarter. Apparently their password crackdown has really worked more than they even thought they were. They expected more cancellations and those not happened. Um, so it's, it's looking good. Their ad ad supported tier is up 70%. Uh, so they had a really, really good call and they were also the only one in, they made profit this quarter, one of the few streaming services to do so. We will see prices rising on uh, Netflix premium, which is like their HD 4k tier that's going to go from 19.99 to 23 dollars um so three dollar increase there and two dollar increase on their kind of middle tier is going from ten dollars to twelve dollars uh and you cannot get that tier if you haven't already had it like if that was kind of grandfathered in um so that that was not even available for most people and their but their their ad tier is staying the same still eight bucks but uh those are the price changes so far I wish I could see like a graph or a chart for like overall satisfaction of customers with Netflix. I'm sure there's been some studies out there, but I've never really found one that's like as up to date as what their new policies are entailing. I like now they've got like four different tiers and plans, right? Ads and some ads and then no ads and then no ads premium. And they got the password thing happening now. So it feels like my whole family is not getting value out of my subscription price. Now it's just me and my partner here in our house. Uh, they're increasing that cost more. I get that they're making more money, but like I don't feel like in general people are more pleased with the service. I feel like people like this less. And personally in my life, I've known people that are unsubbing. So it's a little surprising to hear that they're doing so well. I don't know if it's like the boomer base, right? Like on their Amazon Fire Sticks and on their Roku TVs who are just like, yeah, I'll pay for Netflix. It's fine. But like even I feel like older audiences, at least at least in my life that I know, like even they're pretty displeased. So I don't know who exactly likes this stuff, but apparently Netflix's shareholders sure do. Yeah, I mean, the the price keeps going up, and I'm sure they have some cancellations, but they must be netting more in revenue than uh, the cancellations to offset. And like I said, they're still getting tons of, of the ad tier going as well. Um, that was one of the things I've seen kind of compared in the old TV model. Like, you made a show, and a network got paid from both sides. They got paid to make the show and then got paid to advertise uh, the show, so that's kind of coming back around to that with, again, they're really pushing the ad supported tier. If you're not subscribing to the more expensive tier, it seems like the ad supported tier thing isn't going, going anywhere. Uh, I know Amazon's been dabbling in it. Uh, Disney has been looking to make more money with Disney plus and on top of pursuing uh, password sharing uh, policies, similar to Netflix with their platforms, Disney plus and Hulu. Uh, it seems like they also, uh, it seems like what Netflix is doing is, contagious and spreading around right and i get that's how streaming works 
Keep it here on Oscar for more, you know, and uh, if you sub to Netflix, let us know right into the show if you uh, don't actually want to keep Netflix or maybe feel differently. Maybe you think what they're doing makes sense because I, boy, I feel like I need somebody to hit me over the head and pay me a picture and explain to me how this all works. But I, in other news, uh, a quick pivot to the box office, um, Mission Impossible 8 is in, is in trouble, Andy. <laughs> Mission, mission, <laughs> Ethan, Ethan Hunt is in trouble. All right, like this, this next mission may may be nigh impossible. Mission Impossible Eight has been delayed to summer 2025. Uh, Quiet Place has been moved to summer 2024 from Paramount. But uh, more importantly, Mission Impossible Seven may be getting a bit of a slight rebrand. Uh, what is going on? I, I like I. This movie was in theaters for 90 days, just like Tom Cruise wanted. Like, what happened? Right? What What's happening? New Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible Theater Reckoning is what what's happening. Uh, so this <laughs> yeah. so this is being delayed an, a whole year from it was supposed to come out summer twenty four. It's now coming out summer twenty five, and they did also decided to rename because it was supposed to be Dead Reckoning Part One and then Part Two. But since they're going to be so far apart, probably for recognition purposes, they'll they'll just rename it. Uh, they'll probably drop the Part One from the first movie and then name this, you know something else mission impossible a new reckoning whatever and <laughs> it's just funny but it it's a domino effect that you know first started with this all relates to the strikes um the writer strike even though that's been resolved the actor strike is still going on and they can't film the second half of this movie and they're not make they can't make the deadline of uh next next summer and again a number of other films have been pushed the uh like you said a quiet place Prequel films starring Lupita Nyong'o got moved to the summer from spring. And we're probably going to see a few more. Like when this first started, we saw Poor Things moved and that tennis movie moved and it ended with Dune being moved. And so like we're probably going to see some more shuffling before the strike is over. Remember, had things worked out, we might have been talking about Dune very soon on the podcast. But oh no, now we got to wait. And Andy's right. Like secretly... The golden nugget at the center of this story is that the strikes are moving things around, right? They're not done, like, uh, and and that's really important to talk about. Even though the writer strike seems to have wrapped, uh, SAG-AFTRA is still working at it, and it seems like they're going to meet again. I think what next week? I think I read they're going to kind of come back, okay, start negotiating again because everybody needs to get things moving. But uh, for now, the uh, shifting sands of the box office schedule uh, have not quite settled uh i think it's hilarious that mission impossible dead reckoning part one may be getting a subtle rebrand after the fact for two reasons one because andy and i are very familiar with the seo of trying to work in mission impossible dead reckoning part one into titles and descriptions on content it doesn't work great because it's a really clumsy title and number two, because Tom Cruise has also starred in another action film uh, that got retroactively rebranded when it went to home to went to, to home DVD, uh, Live, Die, Repeat, which got changed to Edge of Tomorrow. And then I think got changed back to Live, Die, or maybe I've got that backwards. Edge, Die, Edge of Tomorrow came out as Live, Die, Repeat, then came back out as Edge of Tomorrow when it didn't really do that well. And now it's funny to think that Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 will likely just shake the Part 1 and just be dead reckoning, uh, which is not bad because it's probably what it should have been anyway. So I don't know. Any thoughts on the rebrand? Um, it might be a little confusing for audiences, but also studios like to stray away from numbering titles uh, because then people feel like, if well, if I haven't seen the first movie, I'm not going to know what's going on. So they don't like to do part one and part two. They'd rather just call them something else 
entirely so you don't feel like you have to go back and watch uh, the first one. So it's probably a yeah, smart it, move in the long run. Yes, and, and also I was reading over the weekend that a lot of people said they were driven away by it saying part one because they just figured, well, I'll just wait till next year when part two comes out and then I can kind of watch them both near each other. Why wait all summer? You know, why, why wait a year? Yeah. Yeah, sticking part one on there was an odd choice. Most don't do it. Uh, Dune did not do it. They didn't really tell people until they were in theater and then saw <laughs> the title card. Uh, you know, I, I, I get it. So something will happen for Tom Cruise's faded franchise. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, a kind of a spooky October story here. Uh, Miramax acquired the hollow the TV rights to Halloween, the Michael Myers franchise, which is is like kind of la- laughably bad. I really thought it was going to be a bit more like cinematic, and it is. They want to make a cinematic universe, but it's starting with a television show. Andy, how do you see uh, Michael Myers Halloween TV show going? Well, I was really disappointed in this news because the it first broke falsely that A twenty four had won the the rights to it, and I and I like actually reposted that, and then I like a few hours later, apparently it was wrong, and it was actually Miramax uh, who did it. It's not a bad move. I I think a lot of times that these bigger properties like comic book stuff or things like Star Wars kind of do better in film form just because you can have so much more content you can have so many you can put more into the episodes uh so i don't think it's a, it's a bad idea especially when there's been so many movies it might be kind of refreshing to see like do another kind of format or see it in, in a different format and see how that kind of works what is miramax's uh streaming service is that paramount plus god i don't know uh, honestly i couldn't tell you isn't there like an MGM Plus? No, is that not? I guess Miramax and MGM are not the same. I'm really not sure. I'd have to look it up. <laughs> no one knows. Okay, keep talking. I'll see if I can figure it out in the meantime. Right. But so it's it's interesting, and I think it, it's something that could work. You know, good TV can be, and great TV is out there with some of these pro- properties, like um, Running of the Peacemaker show, which is really uh, entertaining, or kind of House of the Dragon. But it would be interesting to see what kind of angle they take on it are you going back to laurie strode are you introducing a whole new family a whole new mythos probably going to stick with a little bit of of both Um, it's going to be like you know her long lost cousin's daughter michael is now after um so that that'll be kind of fun seeing what kind of um approach that they take to the property seeing if it'll launch in into t the screen, uh, we'll see that like Marvel is having hard, a harder and harder time and Star Wars like melding TV and film as much as they, they had kind of wanted to when they first started. Uh, jury's still out on who's got Miramax. I think Hulu might have them, but I couldn't actually confirm it. Anyway, if you want to check out Miramax content, I'm sure you can find it yourself. You're a smart listener. Uh, I think horror in television is real spotty. There's been a bit of a run of like nostalgia properties having success. Uh, most recently is what the child's play television show. Did I think just got greenlit for like season three, uh, Ash versus evil dead over on stars, right? Carried the evil dead franchise through three seasons. I know scream had like a two season MTV run. And of course there's American horror story, uh, that FX and Fox have over on FX and Fox, uh, from Ryan Murphy. Um, I, I, that being said, like, I just, I just don't know if Halloween's got the legs 
Listen, like I like Michael Myers is fine, but like it is a stretch every time one of those movies comes out to somehow explain <laughs> what you're, how what you're seeing is even remotely possible, right? The 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 entity or the being or whatever that is Michael Myers just shape. continues to become more elusive in lore, right? The shape as as uh, the franchise continues. So, short of pulling it all the way down to the studs. I don't really know how Michael Myers is going to continue being the horror icon that he's been when he is dampened and pampered for television. Even if it's streaming, right? Like, I think Michael Myers is often scariest when he's doing the most grisly of activities, right? Like, the truly unfeeling nature of the evil, I worry may not transfer to television in the same way that Miramax (laughs) may intend. Uh, I love that they want this to be a cinematic universe, though. God, I, I mean, I can't wait to meet the cast of teenagers that are getting slayed in season one of of the new Halloween show, right? I, I think a lot of it really depends on how well you write TV. Um, I, I recently just finished The Bear season two, and I was really impressed by just the TV writing where you have to develop large plots, smaller plots and also like kind of character driven plots as well that the second season kind of focuses each episode on a different character so if you can do that to the show you can make it interesting it also depends like what kind of themes and things you want to explore but i think you would have to make it really kind of maturity tv and um if because if you're just doing like american horror story level like slasher it's going to get real old real fast yeah, I agree. Uh, also, shameless plug for uh, the bear on Hulu. Andy, we got to talk about that uh, that Richie episode. I think it's episode seven. It's really good stuff. Yeah. Uh, one more story before I move into Killers of the Flower Moon. This one will be quick, I promise. But we got to talk about the Eras Tour. Uh, still tearing it up at the box office, uh, coming in at number one with thirty three million dollars. With Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon riding close behind. With twenty three million, uh, Andy is cinema dead. Has Taylor Swift killed it, or is maybe this kind of a good thing for movie theaters everywhere? What do you think? I'm, I mean, without the Eras tour, theaters would be struggling this month. Because um, again, a lot of things got pushed. Like Dune, Dune was supposed to come out last week, and or this week that we're reviewing uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. So without it, the theaters would have been really struggling. Um, but this is huge. So it opened to. High 90, 96, 97 million last weekend is now at 180, nearing 200 million worldwide. It's already the biggest concert film of all time, Hu- hugely larger than the set. The runner up is like Justin Bieber's tour, which maxed out at like 78 million. So, knocking that out of the water. And not only that, it's like Barbie and Oppenheimer, it's like a cultural surge as well. Like it's, everyone is interested in the Eras tour, everyone's interested in the theaters it whether you're going to see it or not like you can't stop hearing about it you know what's going on it's like a big event so it, it's definitely helping the box office and Killers of the flower moon is somewhat muted because of that because everyone's going to see that but it has been doing pretty well uh over overseas uh, coming in at about 40 million which is i think scorsese's second highest debut yeah, I think uh, the Eras Tour is definitely a good thing for everybody. Uh, shout out to Taylor Swift for bringing some money into the movies. It is so tough hearing somebody say that this week for the for the podcast we could have watched Killers of the Flower Moon and Dune Two. That's rough because like we that didn't happen, and it's a shame. Like we just have Killers of the Flower Moon, but it's an excellent feature, and I'm excited to talk about it. 
Regarding the box office, I don't know when the Eras Tour is going to cool off. It's definitely starting to, for sure. But I think it'll have a nice, healthy run of at least another few weeks. I mean, it's not going anywhere, right? Like, it's going to continue pulling in to tens of millions of dollars for another couple weekends, at least. Uh, meanwhile, it sounds like Apple intends to leave Flower Moon in theaters for a while. I don't know if it'll hold that seat, but I think it's got a bit of a quiet, uh, quiet few weeks ahead. Uh, they said they want it to just kind of coast into Oscar season, right? Get people interested. And, and in that way, I think it's worth mentioning how stellar Apple's theatrical policies are. Most other most other studios doing features aren't aiming to put them in theaters, at least not all of them. Netflix explicitly is trying to keep them out. They just put, the, put them in long enough to qualify for Oscars, and that's about it, which in the case of Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, was like a week. But Apple, meanwhile, goes exactly the opposite way. Uh, they, they book with Martin Scorsese and Ridley Scott, and they say, we'll put your next features in theaters. And in the case of Scorsese, you're not limited on runtime. You can make it as long as you damn want, um, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, I think it's a good thing. Like, I think Apple's doing a solid here for theaters. I think Taylor Swift is doing a good thing. Um both totally different sides of the coin as far as turning a profit go in the theatrical model, but smart and contemporary and exciting and things that move the industry forward. So uh, good things all around, I think. A, a pretty fantastic October. Not Certainly not the scariest thing that's happened at the movies. Uh, I th what's interesting about Apple's approach to Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, the super expensive movie, $200 million movie, historical epic, es essentially. Um, they don't care if it makes the money back because it's not going to make the money back. Like it's, it's, it's a small, it's essentially a, you know, it's a drama that's three and a half hours. You're, you're not going to make that budget back. But the interesting thing, thing is uh, they don't care because that's a drop in the bucket for Apple basically. And their the value from that film is more uh, a, to advertise their streaming service, but B to have a bigger impact and footprint in Hollywood and that's part of the reason that this didn't go to streaming first. Is they wanted to have a big theatrical rollout so everyone would know, hey, this huge new Scorsese movie is coming out. It's an Apple film. And even if you don't go see it, that that it's already make, making waves. It's, all any, it's the only movie people have been talking about this month. Um, so it's interesting that they, they're not interested in the box office return because they have different goals. Where a, where a studio, like a lot of studios passed on Killers of the Flower Moon because they're like, it's just too expensive. I want to pivot into Flower Moon, but I have one more question on this regarding Apple's uh, profit margin, because you're right. They don't seem to be too interested in pulling profit immediately. Uh, we talked about this right after the, th the movie came out. I think you and I talked about it standing outside the theater. Um, do you think they're going to release this on physical or digital, or is it just going to be on Apple TV Plus and that's the only way to watch it? Like, what do you, what do you think the plan is here? Because Scorsese's previous feature, The Irishman, was produced through Netflix and did get a physical release. I mean, I don't know. I think it'll be like that because it, he's such an important director that you kind of have to put it on physical media. And it might just be in the Criterion collection, uh, but it would be a mistake not to. Mm, potential Criterion Collection material. I think there may be no better segue into the film. Uh, Andy has graciously agreed to take the summary on this one. Uh, I don't know how he does it. <laughs> it's a it's a large <laughs> sweeping feature, um, but the movie is uh, well. Andy, please uh, take it away. Killers of the Flower Moon. So this is the latest historical epic from 
famed director Martin Scorsese, uh, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone, is based on the book by David Gran about uh, the murders in the Osage uh, nation in Oklahoma during the 1920s oil boom. We meet, at the beginning of the film, we meet Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He has recently returned from World War I. Uh, is kind of aimless, not really a, 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 a hero. He was a, a cook in, in the army and has some issues where he can't really do hard hard labor, but he's good friends with uh, William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro, who's kind of this patriarch uh, of the area. He's like a well-respected man in the community. Um, and, and he brings Ernest aside, and he was like, you know, you, you're, you're it's time to settle down, get a family, and what a lot of people are doing is... Uh, you know, marrying these Osage women, marrying into their oil money, and um, you know that that money there's that we've seen in all the trailers. That money should come to us, and eventually a scheme is deployed involving Hale and a lot of other people to marry into the, this tribal wealth and do away with with uh, pe- the people that own it, so that that wealth can be be transferred over. Um, so it's about the development of these relationships, the mur- multiple murders that came off the lack of investigation, and the eventual kind of creation of the FBI. I think the book is really it's really about the kind of creation of the FBI by uh, J. Edgar Hoover at the time. Um, that's our big big setup. There's a ton going on in, in this movie. A lot of a lot of characters. Uh, lots to t- talk about. Zach, that's our uh, setup. What did you think? So Killers of the Flower Moon is an intimidating watch, I think, uh, because one, it's long. Two, it's kind of sensitive subject matter, which I'm excited to talk about. And number three, um, its director, who has a brilliant track record, is getting up there in age. And if you've been keeping up with interviews recently, uh, Scorsese's been pulling double time, triple time, because of SAG after shutdown. So Leo and De Niro and Lily Gladstone, none of these people are doing interviews. So Apple and Paramount are like, Scorsese, congratulations, you're the one doing all the interviews. <laughs> so he's been out talking. Like, That's why there's been so many articles from him. Um, that's why it's been him talking about cinema. And one of the things that's been really interesting is him talking about how he's kind of wrapping up. He's probably got just a couple more films in him, he thinks. Like, he's, he's, he's getting up there in age. So you start to wonder, all these things combined, is this going to be maybe a bit of a wayward feature, a bit of a dud? Are, are we going to miss something here? Or is it going to be off the mark? Or is it going to be off color? And I'm really, really satisfied to say, and especially more so after having seen other reviews and see how other people see it, uh, that Scorsese has not missed a step and that Killers of the Flower Moon may be one of his best features. Um, I've seen people say it is their favorite already. It is a stunning feature that I'm very excited to talk about here on the show. Uh, if anything, I'm worried our, our, our as we've been kind of trimming back on review size uh, just to kind of keep things tight on the show, uh, we may get through this review too fast. But we've been pay- we've paced ourselves. We're taking our time. And I want to make sure, being that this is our single feature for the show, that we get into every angle that we can without getting into any spoilers because I want you to feel like you know what you're getting into uh, without having lost anything from the experience of seeing it for the first time. And you go see Killers of the Flower Moon. So, Andy, where do we start talking about this monster? Man, <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking about that. Um, we can start with, with our, our plot because um, this is told from the, the perspective of the kind of people per. per- perpetrating uh the crimes in there it's 
in in a ways it's like a lot of Scorsese's earlier work like it's a gangster film in a lot of ways it's almost proto gangster because you have William Hale who's the wealthy matriarch of the area and he's got a couple of minions and you know he's telling people to you know get this guy to get this guy to do this thing so it it's a little bit uh of a mob film but it the story really takes its time to develop the relationship between uh, Ernest Burkhart and Lily Gladstone's uh, Molly, uh, who's a member of the Osage Nation. Probably a good 45 minutes is spent on the development uh, of their relationship. And it's real interesting because it, it sets up the stage of where we are. Um, she knows he's after the money. Like, it's not a big secret. Like, the these like these women aren't stupid, but they're like, well... You know, he's looking to settle down and I'm still in control of the money, so it's gonna be fine. We find out it's not very fine. But it's it's also it's a mixing of of cultures. When we first meet uh Molly and Leonardo DiCaprio goes to her home, it's very quiet, its house is empty, her mom lives with her upstairs. Um, they sit and listen to the rain. It starts to rain and Molly's like, Stop talking, we're gonna sit and listen to the rain like this. It's very and then down the road, once they, they've been married, all of a sudden the house is filled with people, a mix of, of like his brother, other family, and the house is loud. And it you just, Scorsese does a great job of showing kind of how these relationships and culture are change uh, over time. But their relationship is a really fascinating part of the movie. I think DiCaprio's presence as Ernest Burkhart is like such a fascinating insert as a protagonist in this film because there's a there's a, there's a great interview going around uh with with uh one of the members of the i think costuming uh, uh a, a member of the Osage tribe uh who saw the film and worked on the film and collaborated very closely with Scorsese they shot out in Oklahoma they worked very closely with with the tribe uh to to kind of get things right and he saw the movie and he said you know I kind of wish it had been told from Molly Burkhart's perspective because that feels like it's one of the only ways this could have been done. But then he also steps back and says, it's important because uh, Scorsese is not an Osage and he kind of never really could have told it that way. Choosing to tell the film from functionally the perspective of Ernest Burkhart, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who is an outsider uh, who's come into town, who has learned about all of this and uh, ultimately uh, participates in the social hierarchy of these kind of, just like vultures, man, around the Osage people, like just just everybody with their hand out, right, trying to get a piece constantly. Uh, it 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 makes our protagonist like not a very likable guy, um, and it works so good for a story about people who are ultimately oppressing a society, right? Like the movie's not called The Flower Moon; it's called Killers of the Flower Moon. Like it is about the people doing the bad and like i think it's so clever for scorsese to take that angle because he couldn't really tell the story from the people who were oppressed because he's not really a part of that group but as a filmmaker as an auteur as the man with the movie camera like he can say hey i can tell the story that i can see i can tell the story that's here and that's of a group of people who are despicable right and and he implicates himself like in that, and I think it's kind of brilliant. And I I know that sounds confusing, but I think it's important to talk in generalities about this because the film does a much much better job of hitting it on the head. And I don't want to I don't want to give away a single moment of that. Um, DiCaprio's character is like so sniveling 
and cowardly in scenes, and I did not particularly fancy him. It's a testament to how great he is uh, as an actor. He's tremendous in this film. People have said it's his best, and he's got this horrible, like, <laughs> grimace he does, this underbite. It's really funny. Um, and this big, <laughs> thick accent, his teeth suck. And meanwhile, like, De Niro Un- is... <laughs> underbite of the year. Underbite of the year, of the decade. And meanwhile, De Niro is, like, this... Such charming, charming old man with a twinkle in his eye, like old, old King Hale up on the hill. Um, and he's great, right? Like people have been clowning on De Niro this weekend because he's either seemingly in like Bad Grandpa 3, The Reckoning, uh, straight to Redbox, or he's in like the greatest, <laughs> one of the greatest films of the year <laughs> with Martin Scorsese. And it's true. And he's great in it. And I think probably the breakout performance is Lily Gladstone as uh, Molly Burkhart, who's so tremendous, who is un- tragically on per I- I'm going to say on purpose backseated for the plot uh, in a-, a part of the film, but uh, effectively. So uh, she kind of carries your emotion through the film and she's kind of the, the beating heart of what's, the co- what the conflict is and she's tremendous and like before this she was gonna like quit acting like she's anyway I've, I've i've gushed way too much about it but uh what do you think andy yeah one of the big criticisms of this film is that it uh kind of lacks the osage uh perspective uh which is uh, which is valid but i again scorsese's focus is on the people committing the crimes. And this actually reminds me a little bit of a movie we're going to talk about uh, called The Zone of Interest, which is uh, about a, f- a family trying to make their lives next to a concentration camp. And it's very much about the banality of evil, the people who are just complicit and focusing on the people responsible for the atrocities. And that's kind of what this movie is doing, because one of the things it highlights is not just here are the bad people responsible, but it also highlights the many systems that allowed it as well because everyone is in on uh trying to take take away the wealth from the Osage people the doctors the lawyers the bankers everyone is scheming these people um racism is is a big theme in this movie and it's it's real interesting because when we when we first meet the Osage people um it was the kind of thing where all this oil and all this oil money money was found and uh you know they kind of divided up between members of the tribe and when we first see them like it's the 20s they're all driving nice cars they're wearing furs jewels and it's very kind of juxtaposed because you have all these kind of white vagabonds that are trying to accost them to you know take a picture here or here let me carry your luggage and it's it's kind of the the script is flipped but it, it Again, all these people that they're vultures circling our peoples, as we hear in in the movie, and so he's he's highlighting, I mean, the evils of racism, the systems that allow for this kind of atrocity to happen, and just like the banality of evil, as it's often called, of people just following orders and letting atrocious things happen, and you know, nothing is ever explicitly said. That there's this great line of saying, you know, it's time to go home, and it's said throughout the film, and going home means going home permanently. Right. Going Uh, going, going home to the angels going home. Yeah. Yeah. And so the film, again, it does that mob thing where it's like, you're not, you're never speaking explicitly. It's always, you know, you know, heavily implied, you know, I need you to kill this person. (laughs) 
uh, without coming out and, and saying it. So that's his, his focus is to focus on the evil of these people and how they were able to do what they did. Yeah, uh, the the mafia kind of ang- lean is particularly impressive for Scorsese, uh, partly because of its unique setting, right? Uh, like I said, the film was shot in Oklahoma. Uh, big lenses, lots of outdoor scenes, right? Like tons of extras running around this town, like tons of, of minor characters who aren't even that important, but it'll have a scene or two here or there, right? A local doctor or a a train conductor, right? A, a, a nanny in a house will pop in somewhere in the film and then show up again later, like juggling a very large cast, very large setting. Uh, all works out fantastic. And uniquely, like, not only makes for a fascinating uh, cinematic canvas to paint a, por- a picture on, uh, which Scorsese does excellently, but also, like, also somehow manages to fit into this unique mold Scorsese's built over the years of films that showcase like true real evil, but also like manage to, I guess I highlight why that evil has such success, right? And Goodfellas like Henry Hill's like success ultimately leads to his downfall. All the things he gets from doing terrible stuff with the mafia ultimately is like what ruins him and Wolf of Wall Street, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Jordan Belfort, like, uh, it, it rises to become this incredible powerhouse, right? And he's on the cover of magazines. Everybody wants to work at his firm. And he's got so much money, he's stuffing it in the couch. And oh my God, he can get arrested. It doesn't matter. Um, but he never once shows you like the victims of that because we are the victims. Like we, the audience, are the ones who have been taken advantage of. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon manages to accomplish the same feat. Even though, like, our victims are on screen, right? We, we get to know the Osage. We spend time with them. Like, they are the ones being oppressed. And fundamentally, like, that's laid bare here. And Scorsese has been working on this script for years. Like, he's been wanting to make this project. Like, it's so satisfying to see a director say, I've got a vision, I've got a vision, I've got a vision. And then it finally comes to light. Boy, what a vision it is. You know? Like, masterful stuff. Really tremendous. Yeah, it and it's... It's interesting. Uh, the idea of greed is a big theme in the movie, and again, the the relationship between De, De, not De Niro, um, Lily Gladstone, and DiCaprio is that like he loves his wife, but he also loves money and loves nice thing, and uh, you know, guilt is, is a constant theme in all of Scorsese's work. Um, when you think back to things like The Departed. Uh, you know, characters kind of playing dual dual roles, both good guy and bad guy, with in in the film, and he has a lot of that. Where um, DiCaprio's character, he's he's simple and kind of easily manipulated, but he's also very he feels really guilty about what he's doing, but he also uh, is in love with money. Um, another relationship we have to talk about is between Burkhart and and Hale. Like, there's this. Um, I think he's he's like a nephew or cousin or nephew some uncle, sort yeah, of. Dis- you got it right. Yeah. Distant relation, uh, but De Niro's pulling the the strings in, in town, and and he's he's got everyone in, in his pocket, and he he's he directs DiCaprio. He scolds him when he when he messes up, which is quite a lot. Um, he constantly, uh, you know, he he's slimy, he's slippery, he he's kind of elusive, and and he's again a respected member of the community like he he donates like, like he builds a dance studio for the the you know the ballerina studio he's he puts up an extra five thousand dollars for the you know a reward for for whoever finds the this killer 
which, you know, he's very, very much like instructing uh, to happen. So it's, uh, again, it's Scorsese highlighting these, as it says in the movie, like, can you spot the wolves in in this picture? Yeah, uh, I think Flower Moon, I don't know. I don't know if it's his best. Uh, I think it's it's probably top five for me. Like, I don't know where exactly it lands for you. But before we get to recommendations, I do want to just mention, because I feel like I'm running out of uh, really, really Yeah, there's not, we can't points. get too much into it I know. without starting to ruin and, stuff. And, you, and, and, and I guess that's a good segue into like saying, well, how, how could we not get into more? There's three and a half hours of it, and that's a perfect time to say, let's talk about the runtime. I think one of the largest criticisms of this movie, which is a minor criticism, is that it's too long. And I, and unfortunately I think I agree. I love what's here and it's paced really well. Let me, let me be clear. Uh, 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 Scorsese's editor, what's her name? Teresa Schoonmaker? Schumacher. Schumacher. She has done a fantastic job here. It just feels like, just like with the Irishman, Apple told him, you can make it as long as you want. We don't care. <laughs> and then somewhere along the way, they were like, actually, we're going to make it theatrical. And it's like, okay, here we are. And that's fine. Cause I think it plays great on the big screen. I, I really do. It's very cinematic, but boy, like they, they definitely could have shook, you know, 45 minutes somewhere in here. Right. They could. I mean, that's a big criticism that, you know, maybe this could have been a series, but it is so cinematic. Like it just, you're not going to get the same impact if you watch it at home on your TV, no matter how good your setup is compared to seeing it in a theater. It's made for the theater. It's just, it's grueling. And I was definitely like my butt hurt from sitting so long. Um, I, I drank a 50 ounce calf, uh, diet Coke. I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. Right. Uh, yeah. I, but, but I was definitely, I was never bored. I was, I only, I only checked my, I checked the time twice just to, out of curiosity, not, not out of boredom, but like I, the first time I looked at it about 90 minutes had gone by. And then the next time about uh, two and a half hours got, and I was like, Oh, only an hour left. Um, so it definitely works. You can always trim things, but I would have a hard time knowing where to do that because every scene feels so important and so needed to, uh, the story. Yeah, and ultimately, like I think that's what works so well about it. It's it's it feels so big and it feels so grand and it feels so important and it makes the ending like all that much more solid because ultimately it's a true story. It's at least very much based on one. Um, and like any true story you watch in the theater, you know, you get to the end and it's like, well, how did it turn out? Right? Like, what happened in history then? Uh, and I think Scorsese has a really, really fantastic response to that prompt um i like i said i don't i don't want to say much more about it uh, other than to get into recommendations and andy's right i think it's very cinematic i think it's totally worth seeing in the theater if you have the ability Andy, any other thoughts for recommendations wanted to talk about just real quickly a little bit more about the cast we have a huge cast we have our main three actors but we have a huge cast uh, of cameos and i won't spoil anyone that that we haven't seen in the trailer but we know jesse plemons is in this there's a number of of musicians that show up uh, as characters or lots of character actors that you're like hey I've seen them in in other stuff um lots of of really great roles it's it's almost a bit like Oppenheimer where it seemed like everyone and their mother was in the in that movie uh you get a little bit of that in this as well so some re- really interesting uh, surprises that w- you might you might know of and some you might might not and um that's a really interesting decision I think it works really well 
It's true. Uh, Brendan Fraser is in the film for sure. I know he's briefly in the trailer and he was a surprise. Uh, and additionally, uh, Jesse Plemons is a delight. Uh, that dude, Jesse Plemons is great. Just, I saw people seriously on Twitter after this weekend that they, they were like, we need to talk about why Jesse Plemons might be like one of the greatest character actors ever. He's so <laughs> great. Everything that kid shows up in. Anyway, uh, Andy, would you recommend Killers of the Flower Moon? Yeah, absolutely would. I, I think it's a very important film uh, to see, to learn about this terrible thing that happened to the Osage Nation and how a lot of the things that happened back then are things that continue to happen and still happen today because a lot of it is about the systems in place to uh, take things from people. I was listening to an NPR story uh, about this black family that's losing their land because even though their grandfather owned it, there's like lost paperwork and things. And so it's it's still very relevant today. Definitely one of Scorsese's best. It's a massive epic. It reminded me a lot of something like The Godfather. You spend lots of time with different sections of the story and characters. Um, highly recommend. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Uh, Kills of the Flower Moon, stellar. You should absolutely go see it. I think Andy's right. It might be a Criterion entry uh, later next year. Um, this movie's super cool. <laughs> it's really great. Some career bests. I can't believe Scorsese hasn't lost a step. I can't wait to see what he does next. Rock solid feature. Boy, uh, keep an eye out for it on the top 10 list, gang. Like, it's coming back around. I think Kills of the Flower Moon is really good stuff. Uh, with that, normally we'd be jumping into uh, the death of cinema or our second feature, uh, but because Killers are such a big deal, we decided to just kind of cap it at the one this week. We do have some trailers to talk about, though. Andy, what do we uh, what do we call this segment? It's time for the trailer part. So we got a bunch of trailers to catch up on. Uh, we're going to start with one called The Zone of Interest, uh, which I've talked about before. This is a international feature from Germany, I I believe, starring Sandra Hewler, who is also in Anatomy of a Fall, which is also a big international feature we've talked about. Uh, this has had a lot of buzz. It's supposed to be a big Oscar contender. It's a very serious film. Uh, in the, in the trailer, we see this idyllic German family. They live in like this lovely home, nice garden outside. But then we also notice that the husband is dressed as an SS officer, and that there's next to these big looming buildings in the background and there's barbed wire on one side of the fence and you know it looks like they live next to a manufacturing plant or something and we eventually realize that they are very much living next to a concentration camp and that's kind of the setup of this idyllic family again the banality of evil the complicity of like they're just trying to live their lives while these horrible things are going on uh next door it's very short trailer very kind of looming music actually remind me a little bit of, of the shining um that's coming out in january zach what'd you think fascinating cinematography for a uh, zone of interest which makes me really want to see it reminds me of like yorgos lanthimos or yeah more aptly kubrick a ton of one point perspective and a ton of wide shots where you can see your subjects fully in frame from feet to head and then a little above uh, the whole movie shot like it's security camera footage or something like it's on the ground, like, you know, up on people, but like there's no close ups in these trailers. Everybody is held at arm's length or even further away when possible. Like really fascinating, really interested. Seems like it reminds me of how Yorgos Lanthimos shot Dogtooth, which is why like Yorgos Lanthimos is such a fitting fit for this. Uh, he didn't make it, but I mean, I think he's, I think, I think he's a fitting comparison. 
Uh, that is a Greek feature from 2009, which is kind of weird as well. It's about a uh, family that keeps their, it never lets their uh, uh, kids outside the walls of their walled home. Um, they tell them it's like the apocalypse or something. They can't leave. So these kids just completely raised inside this one small, like raised wall house with this family. It's the same looking movie. It's really odd, like really unnatural. Zone of interest looks really rad. I can't wait to see it. Uh, the next movie we need to talk about is Eileen. Uh, I did not have this one on my radar. IMDb's got the summary, and I'll kind of fill it out a little bit. Uh, Thomason McKenzie uh, plays a, a young woman at a prison facility uh, where she meets the new prison psychologist played by a stunningly blonde Anne Hathaway. And the two of them strike up a friendship that ultimately becomes maybe a little bit more in the most uh, thrilling of manners uh, when Thomas McKenzie's character discovers a bit of information about Anne Hathaway that maybe she shouldn't have known. Uh, kind of an interesting feature. I don't know when this is set. I don't know what the time is, but it looks like it's got a bit of film 60s. grain, a bit of noir looking. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Uh, but kind of an interesting looking movie. And and, and uh, also stars Shea Wiggum, who I want to say is underrated. Shea Wiggum's great. Uh, I'm always interested in what Anne Hathaway's doing at like the end of each year. Like I feel like she's often turning out like either something kind of small and unique, like uh, God, I can't remember that monster movie she was in, or something big like Les Mis. So like I, I think this is kind of kind of a bigger artsy feature for her. Uh, Thompson McKenzie coming hot off the set of uh, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, which we saw for the show, and we're fine on if anything a little lukewarm. Andy, what do you think? I like the the look of this. Um, it's kind of a story we've seen before, where kind of a uh, kind of very plain character meets a more eccentric character, and that kind of changes their their life. This prison setting is interesting, uh, and again, Thomas and Mackenzie is stuck in a very kind of bland marriage at home, boring work life, and she meets this like fabulously dressed and fabulous looking character, and Anne Hathaway drives like a red hot rod and she's like, I'm not like other, other people. And she kind of does her, her own thing and she gets dragged into kind of her charm and we'll kind of see where, where it happens. It's one of those things like she, maybe there's more to her than, than, than meets the eye and then, but maybe that gets them into trouble. It looks like a fascinating psychological thriller. I, I'm interested in that a lot. Yeah. Same. Uh, what's next? Ferrari. The uh, Ferrari biopic starring Adam Driver uh, about Enzo Ferrari, the creator of, of the car namesake, and uh, takes place in the 40s, 50s. Uh, Ferrari is going broke. Uh, but we, we see them... <laughs> this is like stereotypical car movie stuff where it's like racing is juxtaposed with like their personal lives. Um, constant. It just cuts between the two, and it's kind of funny now because I feel like I've seen this uh, quite a few times. Uh, but we meet Enzo Ferrari, who's a, a family man. Uh, Penelope Cruz is in it. She plays his his wife, and his his company is struggling. He's trying to figure out what to do, and they're like, "You got to win the the big race um, to do it." But he's also a bit of a womanizer. He has a relationship with uh, Shailene Woodley, and you see him kind of around other other women. Um, so it it's kind of it reminds me of House of Gucci, where he's trying trying to balance like his personal life and his professional life, and they're, they're probably both kind of going to mess. But we get to see another great Italian impression from uh, <laughs> uh, Adam Driver. I, I love car movies. Uh, I, I was reminded uh, of a couple of years ago the Ford vs Ferrari mo movie that that uh, was well received. 
I think that this uh, this looks interesting. It's uh, distributed by Neon. Zach, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'm into it. Like I I liked for it's funny. I liked Ford v Ferrari, and I did not like um, Ridley Scott's movie. What was it? It wasn't the Borgias. What what was it? The the Gucci House of Gucci, right? Where Adam Driver, yeah, plays uh uh. uh senior gucci i did not like that so this seems like this weird half step between the two uh i'm gonna be honest i i think the drama looks like good stuff uh there's this car flip at the end of the trailer which if you're it watching looks so the line, bad you kind of, it looks, it so, looks bad. so bad dude it is a terrible looking effect and it's fine like i'm sure you know whatever it's not what their budget's about but for what it's worth like i i, I do seem to like the the racing car cut between real life and you know memory and whatever social stuff formula. So yeah, I, I'm like, into Ferrari. I, I'll go see this. I, I, I don't, like, I'm not confident it's going to be good, but I I'm into it. Uh, you we could make talk a about... uh, go ahead. A real quick, you you could make a good parody on like car movie, and it's been just basically like engine revving it's... sounds cut between all the drama. It's funny because that movie exists, uh, but it does it does that poorly because it's too busy being its own film. That movie is uh, um, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky yeah. Bobby. That movie <laughs> that came out right around uh, like um, Dewey Cox, right? Walk Hard, like yeah. same kind of gag, like riffing on this traditional format movie, making fun of films like Days of Thunder. Um, but Talladega Nights is so good at doing its own bits and being a Will Ferrell movie that you forget it's supposed to be like a goofy spoof of of the formula. Uh, yes, I agree. It could be done better, I think. And, and not that Talladega Nights doesn't do a bad job, but uh, another movie I want to talk about here, uh, Leave the World Behind. This is a Netflix feature coming from director Sam Esmail. And before I jump into the still frames, if you're watching on the live, uh, if you're on YouTube, where we've got a lot of exciting things going on, I just want to point out real quick for Andy here so he can see it. Andy, can you see the screen? I can. You can, dude. Ferrari and Leave the World Behind have like nearly the same font in the <laughs> yes, logo. Yes, they do. It is crazy. Oh like God. the red is the same. They got the fade up. Anyway, uh, Leave the World Behind it, is the story. Go ahead. It works for Ferrari because A, their color is red and B, it's one word. Leave the World Behind looks like some student thing. This, Yeah, this looks like some lame all-universe yeah, all communists took over that country thing. Like, I don't even know what I'm looking at here. Uh, Leave the World Behind is the story of the Scots and the Sanfords. The Scots and the Sanfords, you say, who's that? Well, uh, the Sanfords are Ethan Hawke and Julia Roberts, Amanda and Clay, uh, who are married, who are living in town and are desperate to get away. So uh, Julia books a vacation for the two of them. They go out of town to a small Airbnb with a couple of their kids. The Wi-Fi is being weird, but otherwise it's fine. And then that evening, the Scots show up, played by Mahershala Ali and Miala Harold. Uh, apparently, they're supposed to be in that house, or it is their house. The trailer doesn't really make it clear, but either way, the two families end up crashing together when they discover that uh, something is going on on the news. It's a massive cyber attack. Things are turning upside down, and uh, Kevin Bacon shows up as a weird neighbor. Uh, I don't really know what exactly is going on in Leave the World Behind. It looks like a bit of a disaster feature. Reminds me a lot of uh, M. Night Shyamalan's uh, last feature, Knock at the Cabin, right? Like, small Same. group of disparate people who are in one place when things start to go wrong. Uh, I don't know. I think... Anything could be happening here. And being a Netflix feature, it's going to be one of two things. Either it's going to be an Oscar contender or it's going to be totally bad. Uh, what do you think, Andy? 
Man, I think it's going to be bad. It's again, it's a brilliant cast, and, and it's it's such a good cast. I'll definitely watch it, but I don't have a lot of faith in it. Again, it, it reminds me of Knock at the Cabin, and the problem with a lot of these kind of high concept uh, disaster sci fi movies is that they're never really that satisfying once they you, it, it, it's revealed whatever's going on. It's usually like, oh, that's it. I think a much better version of that is something like It Comes at Night. Uh, which I, I might have to re rewatch, where th there has been a, some sort of global disaster, but you're never told what it is. You never see what it is. You just know that people are kind of in this you know, post-apocalyptic world because it's about different things, about humanity and you know, things like that. Uh, I feel like this is going to be really underwhelming once whatever is revealed is revealed. And Netflix has a history of like, you know, ponying up the money to, to, to get star power and then, like, having the worst script you've ever seen. I'm reminded of The Gray Man. The Gray Men? Yeah. <laughs> the Gray Man, I think. Yeah, sure. Red Notice, right? Like, oh, God, you can mm -hmm. think of 15, uh, whatever Ryan Reynolds' last two movies were. Like, you can just think of whatever, you know, uh, The Adam Project. Like, movies come out fine, and The Adam Project wasn't bad, but I, I do think it's funny that... Uh, this seems like one of those movies that's more about the allure of the mystery than like whatever's actually lying at the center of it. Cause you're right. Like these big tech movies are always oh, like, they're always weird. It's always weird to try to push for. Also, I wanted to point out there's a, there's a bunch of what I think are CGI cars. Cause they try to do that scene that every post-apocalyptic film has to have where there's a bunch of abandoned cars on the highway, but they're all the same color and they all look a little bit too clean. And it was like, those are a bunch of CGI cars that you're having. Right. Actors, like, do you, do you think in this through. Netflix feature, they budgeted for 80 cars down a highway that all look the same? Or do you think they copy and paste? <laughs> yeah. There's like three real cars and then 50 fake cars. Yeah. It's funny, actually, uh, speaking of Flower Moon, there's a great shot in that where they've got like a, a helicopter shot swooping in on De Niro's uh, uh, cattle farm. And like, just like, I was like, they did not get 3000 head of cattle for this shot. I guaranteed most of those are not really there, but that's growing old and watching movies, right? You just see right through the magic. But that, but that works on a scene like that, because again, it's a helicopter shot. They're way high up. Cattle are small. It's not detailed. Establishing. Copy, yeah. 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 When you, you copy paste a, whole a bunch of cars. Yeah, a yeah. bunch of cars that are literally identical, all the same color, unless that's the mystery and they're all robot cars that have gone rogue which sounds like the episode an episode of the twilight zone um, yeah <laughs> yeah it just it, that's what i mean like netflix they they spend a lot of money on it used to be actors in production now it's just actors um and i, I don't think it's gonna be very good uh all right neither of us real confident about leave the world behind one more feature uh, before we wrap up the show for the week occupied city so this is the latest documentary from Academy Award winning director Steve McQueen, who previously uh, won the Oscar for 12 Years a Slave. Uh, and I forget what he's done in between that. Uh, Occupied City is about Amsterdam, and it's about Amsterdam's long and complicated history. Uh, Amsterdam was once occupied by Nazi Germany, and it's about... That occupation, what happened back then, how it happened, the timeline, but also juxtaposed with, I think, the rise of fascism within uh, Amsterdam today. We don't in the trailer. We don't really get a lot of what's happening today outside of some kind of riot footage, but we get a lot of what happened in the past. It was like first 
they came in and the first Jews weren't allowed in pools or in cinemas then and then they started rounding people up and then they started taking like shipping them out so that's it's going to be a very heavy film. It's a documentary, um, and uh, I'm interested to see where it goes. But, I mean, he's an excellent filmmaker, uh, one of the best filmmakers alive right now. Um, I'm definitely going to have to see it. Uh, same kind of style. Uh, it reminds me, at least, of, of uh, the zone of interest, like the way the camera's pulled back in this like strictly voyeuristic kind of view, especially being a doc. Like, I think this has some credit in that way obviously it's going to be documentary it's going to be pulled back uh but i love the way that amsterdam seems to be on display here there are so many films where the city is almost a character in and of itself right you think of new york and ghostbusters you think of i don't know los la and pain and gain uh, in this film amsterdam is very much like the setting as well as kind of the character at least from what i can tell here if there is like a central family or something like that's not made real apparent uh, that being said, Steve McQueen has been doing mostly music videos uh, since 12 Years a Slave to do Widows, which we saw and liked for the show. But otherwise, it's been pretty quiet and I don't think he's done a lot of documentaries. So I'm really interested to see what this turns into. I think he has done shorts that are of this style, I think. I don't I don't think I've seen any of them, but uh, for what it's worth, Steve McQueen is got a pretty stellar track record. So I'm looking forward to Occupied City. Like I like it. This stuff just feels like bold cinema, you know what I mean? This is something I've never seen before, and like that's exciting to me. Um, yeah, and that's it. I think. Uh, uh, any other? That's it for the, the week. <laughs> I think that's it for the week. God, what a week at the movies! Killer of the Flower Moon again. Could have been Dune too. Might have been an insane week on the podcast, but already already was pretty good stuff. Andy, what are we watching next week? We're gonna be taking a look at Justine Trier's Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, something that we've been talking about quite a bit. Uh, again, just to remind you, this is the uh, it's a courtroom drama, a French film uh, about a woman's husband who takes a spill over the balcony, dies, and it's a big question of did she or did she not push him off of it? Um, apparently, it, it's more much more than that. Uh, that's just kind of the surfacing. Heard lots of buzz about it. It was the uh, I think Palme d'Or winner at Cannes. Um, again, Zone of Interest was actually the Grand Prix winner, which was like the second runner-up. We're also going to be taking a look, finally, at Past Lives, uh, which we've heard tons and tons of bu buzz about. This is a uh, kind of Korean-American drama uh, by new director Celine Song, who we, we've heard nothing but, but good things about. But this is about kind of childhood friends who uh, grow up in Korea, one of them moves to the States and then they reconnect years later. Uh, and apparently it's just an, in, an incredible film. I've heard nothing. I, I've heard buzz about this for like four months and it was $20 to rent. Now it's only like four ninety nine, So it's now within the, the, uh, the Oscar budget <laughs> to rent. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to be take, taking a look at that. And then uh, just some FYI releases, uh, five nights at Freddy's comes out this uh Friday on October 27th, if you're interested in that. I can already hear people being like, what do you mean you didn't watch Five Nights at Friday's for the podcast? Maybe we will. All right, maybe we'll get around to it. But I'm going to be honest, neither of us are that warm on those and we haven't played any of the games. I'm excited for Anatomy of a Fall. Very much looking forward to Past Lives. Past Lives reminds me of the buzz After Sun was getting uh, earlier this year, right? When that came out, that's a whole thing. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't say thank you enough for listening to the show. 
If you listen to the show today, if you got to hear, seriously, thank you. You're one of the realest ones we got. We really appreciate it. If you like what we're doing here on Offscript, the biggest thing you can do is just subscribe to the show on whatever outlet you're listening to. If you're listening to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartMedia, wherever we're at, Deezer, Geo7, like whatever we're around, you can subscribe to us there. You can subscribe to us on YouTube where we have very exciting things going on, individual reviews, big things going on. Come check us out over on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on all the other social media places. You can rate and review. You can leave a comment if you like. You can check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com, for more from us, Andy and I. And, of course, you can write us correspondence with anything you've got on your mind, film-related or otherwise, at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. I think that wraps the whole thing from all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.